Thank you all for coming. I don't have a microphone down here, so if you can't hear me, please let me know and I'll speak louder. Um, I'm very grateful to Sotiris and to Patricia for inviting me to speak today. Um, it is a great honor to be in also our favorite rival, um, even though it takes two and a half hours to get here from Cambridge, as we were just discussing. Um, uh, what I will be presenting today is indeed, as uh, Patricia said, the topic of my PhD, which will then be the topic of my monograph, which I will finish sometime soon, in the next couple of weeks. Um, and the particular question that I thought I would address today is whether or not there is any practical relevance in drawing the distinction between justification and excuse. Um, so as most of you will probably know, the Articles on State Responsibility in Chapter 5 of Part 1 recognize six defenses in international law. These are the defenses of consent, self-defense, countermeasures, force measure, distress, and what I like to call state of necessity, but the articles call necessity um, generally. Now, a quick glance of, at this list should give an indication that the circumstances are all quite self-evidently very different from one another. They cover a really broad range of field. So some involve the use of force, others concern the commission of wrongful acts, and others still relate to the occurrence of natural irresistible events like earthquakes and tsunamis and so on. So since the inception of this list in 1979 by the International Law Commission, there have been questions as to whether all of these rules belong to the same category or whether indeed they can be divided into different typologies of defenses. Now, of course, the notion of justification and excuse are a very common way of dividing or classifying defenses in domestic legal orders. Now, I should say they are not the only types of defenses available in domestic legal orders. But nevertheless, these are the two notions that have been discussed at international law in an effort to systematize or organize what would otherwise be a miscellany or a grab bag, as it has been referred, of rules. Now, can the circumstances in the articles be divided into these two categories? Well, the ILC considered this issue both in the first reading and in the second reading of the articles. And I think that, and I fear that this is not always apparent in the secondary literature, that the Commission's position on this point was actu actually rather equivocal at both points. During the first reading, the Commission, and I apologize to the Italians in the room, uh, was rather overwhelmed by Roberto Ago's own view about uh, defenses in international law. And so it initially decided that for the time being, and I quote, uh, it would accept that the defenses were justification pending a subsequent discussion on the matter. When the subsequent time came, uh, the Commission could only agree that in the normal case, the defenses would operate as justifications, perhaps suggesting that in abnormal cases, whatever they might be, the defenses would actually operate as excuses. Now, the question was raised again in the second reading by Special Rapporteur Crawford, who this time seemed much more favorable towards drawing the distinction between the two. But this time, the Commission was overwhelmed by other things, namely completing the project in the short four years that the General Assembly had given it. And there were very many other pressing matters that the Commission had to address before completing the articles. Things ranging from the international crimes of states to the regime of countermeasures to the question of dispute settlement within the project. And so the distinction between justification and excuse took a second place. And, and I've asked uh, Professor Crawford directly 
why did they not address it? And he said they thought that there was enough there to pass a coherent project through, and it wasn't actually necessary to reopen a debate that could end up taking a lot of time. So the Commission raised the question, but decided ultimately not to resolve it. On balance was the word they used. It was not the right time to distinguish or to propose a distinction between justification and excuse. So the Commission didn't actually settle the point. It left, in my view, the question open for subsequent development. And this can be seen in the various references uh, that appear throughout the commentary to the notions of justification and excuse. Now, some part of the literature has seen in this use of the two notions uh, a sort of confusion by the Commission. The Commission is not knowing what these two terms mean and using them as synonymous. I don't think that that is actually the case. I think it is a rather condescending view of what the Commission was doing. And reading through the Commission's work in the ILC yearbooks, it seems very clear that the Commission knew the meaning of these two notions and used them intentionally in that way. Now, states were supportive of the Commission drawing the distinction in the ILC articles, well, some states at least. Uh, and since the adoption of the articles, the distinction has been upheld or has been um, maintained by at least two investment tribunals, by the annulment committees in CMS in Argentina and in the committee by in SEMPRA in Argentina. Now, this is all well and fair. This is, can the distinction be drawn? But the question still lingers. Aside from perhaps systematizing and organizing the defenses, is there any practical purpose in distinguishing between the two? So does the distinction actually make a difference? Now, in 2002, Sir Thomas Frank remarked that the distinction uh, was so fine as to be of pure yet also considerable academic interest, which is why I chose this as the title of the presentation. Um, in his view, the distinction could perhaps be made, but it wasn't clear that there would be any practical consequences to drawing it. Now, Sir Thomas Frank's view is not, in fact, unique. Um, it has been expressed many times before, especially in domestic law settings where the distinction was first developed. So, for example, the great 19th century English <coughs> criminal lawyer Sir James Stephen said in, in 1883 that the distinction had historical significance, but that it involved no legal consequences in the common law. And this is a view that has been maintained, especially by common lawyers ever since. Admittedly, however, this irrelevance thesis, as we might call it, is starting to diminish, and criminal lawyers across the globe are starting to recognize that there is some practical relevance to the distinction. And indeed, the practice of criminal law in very many jurisdictions has shown that the distinction can carry some very important practical consequences. So what about international law? Well, the practice of defenses in international law is relatively scarce. Um, and this is perhaps not surprising, given that the defenses relate to exceptional circumstances, which will, by definition, occur only very rarely. But in this practice, there is no evidence that the distinction might make a difference. So if we just look at the practice, we can't really answer the question, would the distinction um, do a, serve any practical purpose? So is, does this mean that Th Sir Thomas Frank is right? Does this mean that since we haven't actually had to worry about the distinction between the two, it is irrelevant to do so. Now, I want to challenge Frank's view. Um, I do not think that the distinction is practically irrelevant, and I think that there are indeed certain areas of international law where distinguishing between justified conduct and excused actors might make a difference. Now, to be fair, these situations have not all arisen yet, 
but this does not mean that they might not arise in the future. And so when they do, and if they do, the distinction between justification and excuse might be crucial or can be crucial to the resolution of these problems. I will present the argument today in three steps, and I will begin with some introductory remarks on the notions of justification and excuse. I will limit my comments to definitional aspects of justification and excuse, but I'm happy to discuss other questions, including theory, um, later on. Second, I will consider three areas of international law where the distinction between justification and excuse can make a difference. Uh, and finally, I will provide some concluding remarks. So first, distinguishing justification and excuse. Uh, von Lowe, in his famous 1999 article, Precluding Wrongfulness or Responsibility, a plea for excuses, drew the distinction as follows. He said, there is conduct that is right, and there is behavior that, although wrong, is understandable and excusable. Now, this explanation, short as it is, gets to the core of the difference between justification and excuse. It says justifications concern conduct, there is conduct that is right, and excuses instead concern an actor which has engaged in wrongful conduct. Now, these two notions, justification and excuse, are not exclusively legal concepts. They exist in moral philosophy, they are used in ordinary language as well. And in all these areas, the meanings of the two notions are roughly similar. Justifications will refer to conduct that is permissible or morally right, um, excuses will concern the consequences for an actor of having engaged in wrongful or impermissible conduct. And for this reason, Lowe himself note that no dramatist and no novelist would confuse these two notions, no philosopher or theologian would ever conflate them. Now, as far as the legal concepts are concerned, um, I can provide the following definitions as a sort of general definition. Uh, the definitions were developed as consensus definitions by the criminal law philosopher Douglas Husak uh, in a summary of scholarly developments on these two concepts. And please do note, however, that every single term that I use, or almost every single term that I use in these definitions is contested and carries with it a certain number of assumptions and implications. So as far as justifications are concerned, these are defenses that arise from properties or characteristics of acts. A respondent is justified when his conduct is not legally wrongful, even though it apparently violates the law. So justifications, in short, relate to the act, and they have the effect of excluding that that act, which is apparently contrary to a rule of the legal order, is unlawful. So unlike Lowe's definition here, I limit the notion of justifications from the legal standpoint to permissible behavior rather than necessarily morally right behavior. Um, excuses instead, are defenses that arise from properties or characteristics of actors. Um, an actor is excused when he is not blameworthy or when he is not responsible for his conduct, even though the conduct violates the law. So excuses relate to the actor instead of the act and relieve that actor of the responsibility for the commission of a wrongful or an illegal act. So strictly speaking, Justifications relate to conduct, conduct is justified, actors are excused, uh, although it is often the case that we say actors are justified and conduct is excusable. Uh, these are usually shorthand terms for conduct, uh, an actor whose conduct is justified or um, an actor whose uh, conduct for which the actor is excused. So I, I will use the terms also in this sense, I will also speak of justified actors and excused conduct, but please note that these are shorthand for 
much more elaborate <laughs> definitions. Now, these definitions that I have given roughly track the, cons the, the terms, uh, sorry, the, uh, roughly track the concepts of circumstance precluding wrongfulness and circumstance precluding responsibility that were used by the International Law Commission. Circumstances precluding responsibility, as the term suggests, preclude the wrongfulness of an act. Namely, they preclude the judgment, they preclude the conclusion that that act constitutes a breach of international law. Um, I'd like to make a small pause here and make a clarification about this because I think it often gets lost as well in the secondary literature. Now, circumstances precluding wrongfulness do not operate after a breach of international law has already been established. It is not the case that there is a breach of international law and that therefore there is an internationally wrongful act and subsequently the circumstance precluding wrongfulness erases the breach. The breach does not arise at all. All the, all the effect that the circumstances have is to prevent the judgment that there has been a breach of international law. So on this basis, it might be said, and this some people find quite controversial, that in fact circumstances precluding wrongfulness operate at the level of primary rules rather than at the level of secondary rules. And perhaps we may discuss this later on. Now circumstances precluding wrongfulness instead exclude the legal consequences of a wrongful act. Article 1 of the Articles on State Responsibility says that every internationally wrongful act of a state entails the responsibility of that state. By responsibility, the article means um, the legal relations established in Part 2 of the article, so the obligations of cessation and reparation. A circumstance that precludes responsibility basically means that even though there is an internationally wrongful act, that effect in Article 1, the entailment of responsibility, doesn't actually arise. So an excused state will not be obliged to provide cessation or reparation. So as you can see, the, the notions of circumstance precluding wrongfulness and circumstance precluding responsibility are roughly similar to those of justification and excuse. And so for the rest of the talk, I will use the term justification and excuse to save time, <laughs> uh, and also because I find those two expressions, the international law expressions, to be very difficult to pronounce, uh, even after all these years. So I will talk about justification and excuse generally. Now, what consequences flow from drawing this distinction? Well, there is an obvious benefit. Um, systematizing rules, organizing rules, certainly brings coherence to the law. Um, and it allows us to think more in a, in a much more organized way about uh, the way in which we apply rules. So there is certainly a benefit from organizing rules into different categories. But are there any other practical consequences that may flow from this distinction? Because if we just want to systematize or organize rules, we might find a different principle of systematization. We might not need to rely on justification and excuse. We might just choose a different way of organizing them. So what is the benefit, what is the additional benefit of distinguishing between justification and excuse? Well, Vongo made a very important argument about this in 1999, and he said that there are very important normative consequences that follow from classifying a defense as a justification or an excuse. In his view, justifications are more likely to weaken the normative pull of a rule because they serve to carve out certain circumstances in which even though the provision of the rule is not complied with, uh, the conduct will not be wrongful. Excuses, on the other hand, he thought, actually do uphold the normative pool of rules because they maintain that uh, illegality of the conduct even though we might excuse the actor for the behavior that he has engaged in. 
Now, this is certainly a very important normative implication which has been noted in domestic legal systems as well uh, and is very well explained by law, as you would expect, so I will not say much more about this. All I can do is refer you to his article from 1999 and you can have a better idea, a much a, a more elaborate way of explaining the same point. So what I want to do here is to add to Lowe's argument. And what I, I will do this by looking at three aspects of international law in which the distinction might make a difference or might not. Uh, these are three practical problems, if you will, of international law. Uh, first is the duty of compensation in Article 27B of the Articles. Second is the question of responsibility of accessories. And third is the entitlement to suspension and termination of treaties. Now, I will start with the duty of compensation in Article 27B. The provision, as far as is necessary, is quoted there. And as you can see, I have a question mark in the title. And the reason for this is that I don't actually think justification and excuse are helpful in solving the problems relating to Article 27B. Um, this possible consequence of justification and excuse is often mentioned in the literature, so I thought I should say something about it. Uh, and I thought I would do it first so that we don't finish the talk on a negative note. So I'm going to get the negative stuff out first and then we can talk about the positive consequences. Now, Article 27 is in the form of a non-prejudice clause. Um, the successful invocation of a defence, namely, does not preclude the possibility that a duty of compensation might arise for the invoking state towards the injured state. Now, the commentary explains that this duty of compensation is not a form of reparation. It is not an indemnity for damage caused by wrongful conduct. Indeed, the very notion of material loss used in this provision is different and narrower from the term damage, the concept of damage used in part two of the ILC article. So, presumably, material loss would not include, for instance, moral damage. Now, the rationale for the inclusion of this duty of compensation in the articles was based on notions of fairness. If you read the commentary, the commentary suggests that it was a means to avoid that a state might shift the burden of the protection of its own interests onto another innocent state. Now, there have been a number of difficulties with this provision, uh, not the least of which is that of the circumstances in which the duty arises. Neither the text of the provision nor the commentary give any indication of the circumstances in which a state successfully invoking a defence will be bound by a duty to compensate material loss caused to the injured state, so to speak. Uh, we know that on first reading, the provision was limited to four defences only. It was limited to state of necessity, force majeure, distress, and somewhat oddly consent, and I cannot find reasons why consent would have been included in that list, um, but we know that it was limited to these three defences. So the way scholarship has attempted to resolve the question of the circumstances in which this duty arises is by trying to identify which defences will attract a duty of compensation and which defences will not. So by saying, for example, state of necessity attracts a duty of compensation, self-defence does not. And a relatively simple way of doing this has been the notions of justification and excuse. Because it is very simple to say, well, justifications, because they involve permissible conduct, do not attract a duty of compensation. Excuses, because they involve wrongful conduct, do attract this duty of compensation. Now, despite the apparent simplicity, um, I think that matters are slightly more complex than this. And 
to try to resolve the question by reference to justification and excuse is both under-inclusive and over-inclusive. To begin with, the solution, I think, is over-inclusive um, in that it would cover invocations of force majeure. Force majeure is a defense which is usually thought of as an excuse and which my research shows is probably best characterized as an excuse. Um, and the thing is that in the case of force majeure, a state which invokes this defense is as much a victim of the external event, if you will, as the injured state is a victim of that event. So a classic example of this is the argument that Venezuela presented in French Company of Venezuelan Railroads. When the claim was made against it by the company for um, bankruptcy due to failure by the government to pay certain debts owed to the company, the Venezuelan government said, well, the same unforeseen events that led to your bankruptcy led to our default of our, of our debts. We are just as innocent as you in these circumstances. Why should we be paying the material loss that you have suffered as a result of an external, unforeseen and irresistible event? So the state that invokes force majeure is, in a sense, just as innocent as the state who suffers the consequence of that force majeure. And indeed, it has to be just as innocent, because Article 23 of the Articles and Responsibility excludes that, um, sorry, excludes that, uh, that the state that invokes force majeure can rely on this defense if it has contributed to the situation of force majeure. So the state that invokes force majeure must not have contributed to the situation. And if the state that invokes force majeure is as innocent as the state who is the victim of the material laws, then the rationale of the duty of compensation would be defeated because the whole point was to prevent an innocent state from having to pay for the protection of the interests of another state, and here we have two innocent uh, parties. So the solution would be over-inclusive because if we think of force majeure as an excuse, it would apply to these circumstances and undercut its very own rationale. But the solution is, I think, also under-inclusive, and the reason for this relates to the defense of necessity. The defense of necessity as codified in the Articles on State Responsibility takes the form of a justification. This is a classic lesser evils defense. As you can see from the text, the defense is only available where the state acts in breach of international law to protect a superior interest. So there has to be the protection of a superior interest and the defense will be, a, will be a, available to the state only if the interest that is harmed is in the circumstances inferior. Um, Lesser evil defenses are the paradigmatic case of justification. And indeed, all legal systems that recognize a justification of necessity classified, uh, formulated as a lesser evil's defense. So if state of necessity is a justification, then under this simple solution, then there would be no duty of compensation. And yet, it is in precisely in these cases in which we intuitively think that a duty of compensation should arise. And indeed, if we look back through the Commission's work on the duty of compensation, when Agua first introduced it, it had limited, he had limited it only to the defense of necessity. So he introduced it as a part of the provision on state of necessity. Now, the, cons the, question, of the, sorry, the question of compensation in the circumstances is one that has troubled philosophers, moral philosophers, and domestic legal theorists for quite a long time. Uh, Grotius himself, for example, when talking about the doctrine of necessity in the law of nations, couldn't explain 
why, in circumstances of necessity, an, an individual who had benefited from the defence should pay compensation. Puffendorf made this difficulty in Grotius' theory the basis of his criticism of the Grotian doctrine of necessity, but then Puffendorf himself is unable to provide a theoretically satisfying answer. Um, domestic theorists have dealt with this question many times before, and they usually do it through thought experiments, and perhaps one of these is useful to illustrate the kind of situations that we're dealing with. So the, the classic example is that of the lone hiker who, to protect himself from a storm, breaks into a cabin, and while in the cabin, he uses the wood available there, um, burns the wood to uh, keep himself warm, perhaps burns some furniture to keep himself warm, and might uh, eat the provisions in the cabin as a means of sustenance. Now, most theorists, and I think most legal systems, would agree that the lone hiker has not committed a wrong, that what the lone hiker has done is, a, is all things considered, a permissible legal behavior. He was protecting a superior interest, his life, to the detriment of an inferior interest, the interest in property. So all things considered, his conduct is permissible. So the question is, should he pay for the damage caused to the cabin? Should he pay for the wood he burned? Should he pay for the furniture or for the food? Now, theorists have not been able to come up with a generally persuasive answer to either of the two possibilities, to the possibility that he might have to pay or that he might not have to pay. And domestic legal systems too have adopted very different solutions. Uh, German law, as far as I understand, establishes a duty of compensation in those circumstances. Italian law, on the other hand, does not. It leaves it up to the judge to decide on the basis of equity, even in those circumstances, a, a, a duty of compensation might be necessary. International law, of course, has not yet come up with an answer to this problem of necessity, which I think is evidenced by the fact that investment tribunals have taken very different solutions to this problem, in fact, opposite solutions to this problem. Now, I don't want to enter into the substance of the debate, but we might discuss it later. I think um, we have some people in the room who have studied the question of necessity in much more depth than me, so perhaps uh, they will have comments. But all I want to point out at this, uh, this point is that to simply say that the question of the circumstances in which Article 27b obligation arises relate to the question of can be answered by reference to the notions of justification and excuse is perhaps a bit too simplistic and fails to capture some of the very difficult theoretical points that are raised by situations like force majeure and state of necessity. So as far as Article 27b is concerned, I don't think justification and excuse actually do make a difference. Now let's go on to the positive things. <laughs> Um, first of all, accessory responsibility. Now, accessory responsibility is one of those issues in which domestic legal theorists normally use as an example of a situation in which the distinction between justification and excuse make a big difference. In essence, the point is this. Accessories to justified conduct are not responsible because they have participated in the commission of a lawful act whereas accessories to excused actors remain responsible because they have participated to the commission of a wrongful act. So justifications are said to be universal for this reason. They radiate their effects to all participants in the conduct, whereas excuses are personal. They're limited only to one of the actors and do not spread to the rest of the accessories um, to the conduct. Now, again, this is a very simplistic way of looking at the problem. And domestic criminal lawyers have shown that actually the situation is slightly more complex. Um, 
the responsibility of accessories usually depends not only on the relation of the accessory with the principal actor, but also the relation of the accessory with the victim. Um, and these relations can often be very complex. And again, a relatively simple example should serve to represent this. Um, say that there is an accessory that sees um, an aggressor attacking victim. Accessory has no interest in helping victim to fend off the attack and would be happy to simply just walk away. But then he realizes that aggressor is his enemy. And once he has realized this and realized that he actually wanted to harm him anyway, he stops and helps victim fend off the attack and in so doing causes bodily harm to aggressor. Should accessory benefit from the victim's defense of self-defense or should accessory remain responsible towards the victim because the intention and the motives that he had in helping, um, um, helping victim are different? Now, this type of factual scenario cannot adequately be <coughs> captured by the very simple solution, justifications are universal, um, excuses are personal. So domestic law scholars agree that in general, accessory responsibility is not dependent upon the principal actor having a justification or an excuse. But nevertheless, this is not to say that whether the principal actor has a justification or an excuse is completely irrelevant. It is still an important factor that must be taken into account in determining the criminal responsibility of an accessory, because ultimately we will judge his conduct also by reference to the fact that that conduct may or may not have aided in the commission of a crime. Now, what about international law? Does international law reflect these similar patterns? Now, international law recognizes, as I have here, three forms of accessory responsibility. Uh, chapter four of part one is called responsibility in connection with the wrongful act of another state, and this is crucial, and contains provisions on aid and assistance, direction and control, and coercion. In all of these three scenarios, the accessory state, the one that aids or assists, the one that directs or controls, or the ones that coerces, is internationally responsible alongside the state, the principal actor, so the state that actually has committed the internationally wrongful acts. Now, there are a few things to say about these three provisions that I think are important so that we understand how justification and excuse might affect them. First is that the accessory state is responsible for its own conduct. It is not responsible for the acts of the principal actor. So basically, these three provisions are not provisions about attribution of conduct. Okay? It is not the case that the wrongful act of the principal is attributed to the accessory state and that the accessory state is therefore responsible for the act of the principal actor. The accessory state instead is responsible for its own conduct. It is responsible for aiding and assisting, for, direct, sorry, for directing or for coercing the principal into committing the wrongful act. Okay, so if a state A assists a state B in breaching, say, the inviolability of diplomatic correspondence, state A is responsible for aiding state B, but not for the breach of inviolability itself. Now, second is the fact that aiding or assisting, directing or controlling or coercing another state are not in themselves wrongful behaviors. Okay? There is no general prohibition at international law of engaging in any of this conduct. Perhaps a slight ex exception here might be coercion, which in some circumstances can constitute a breach of the principle of non-intervention, but below that threshold, coercion will not in itself be internationally wrongful. So what renders the, access, the accessory state responsible if it's not its own conduct is the fact that its conduct is connected to the wrongful act of another state. 
So by implication, if there is no internationally wrongful act of the other state, then the accessory state cannot be held responsible. So it is for this reason that international lawyers speak of accessory responsibility as a derivative form of responsibility. Now, if this is the case, I think it becomes easily apparent why the notions of justification and excuse might have an impact on the responsibility of accessories. If the principle has a justification and its conduct is therefore permissible, the accessory will have contributed to the commission of a lawful act. As a result, since the conduct is not an internationally wrongful act, the accessory cannot be held responsible for, his own, uh, for its own uh, assisting, aiding, and so on. If the principle instead is excused and its conduct remains wrongful even though the accessory cannot be held responsible, so it will not be held liable to the obligations of cessation and reparation, the accessory will have participated in the commission of a wrongful act and it can still be derivatively responsible. Now, I think this is especially important in relation to coercion. Unlike the other provisions on derivative responsibility, Article 18 does not contain a reference to the wrongful act of the principal state. And the reason for this is that the ILC thought that on many occasions, the state that is coerced by another state will not actually be responsible towards the injured state. And the reason for this is that coercion, according to the Commission, must be equated to the notion of force majeure. The reason for equating coercion and force majeure, according to the Commission, is that in both cases there is an external pressure that removes the choice from the state whether or not to comply with its international obligations. So when there is a state that is coercing another state, that state loses its ability to choose whether or not it will perform its international obligations. And in this sense, the external coercion by another state is not dissimilar from the coercion that may arise from the occurrence of an irresistible, even though natural, event. So the result of this is that in many cases in which there is coercion of one state over another state, there will also be a situation of force majeure. And so the coerced state will be able to benefit from the defense of force majeure. Now this means then that the coerced state might not be responsible towards the injured state. But, and this is crucial, the Commission was of the view that the injured state must still be allowed to obtain redress from somewhere, because it would be unfair for the victim state not to be able to obtain redress. If it cannot obtain redress from the coerced state, then it must obtain redress from someone else. And the Commission thought the coercing state should be held responsible in these circumstances. Now the problem, of course, is that if force measure is a justification, as the commentary to the ILC article suggests, and there is therefore no wrongful act, then there's no way to maintain that the coercing state is itself responsible as well. So recall that the coercing state is, is responsible only derivatively, only to the extent that the act of the principal actor is itself a wrongful act. So if we think of force majeure as a justification, as the commentary seems to do, then there would be no legal basis to hold the coercing state responsible. So the only way to uphold non-responsibility of the coerced state and the responsibility of the coercing state is to characterize force majeure as an excuse. Because in these cases, as I was saying earlier, the coerced state will have committed a wrongful act but will not be responsible for the consequences, whereas the coercing state has participated or has engaged in acts which are connected to a wrongful act, and on that basis, it can be held responsible. 
So it seems clear, it seems clear to me that in international law, there is quite an important role to play for justification and excuse in the field of the responsibility of accessories. Now, the last entitlement, the last um, area that I wanted to discuss in this connection is the entitlement of a state to the suspension or termination of a treaty following a material breach. Here again, I think whether the material breach is justified or excused may determine whether the, the entitlement in Article 60 is available to the other treaty party. Now, I will focus here only on Article 63B of Article, so Paragraph 3B of Article 60 on the violation of an essential provision of a treaty, and I will also limit my comments to the essential case of bilateral treaties, which is why I have elided <coughs> the whole of Paragraph 2 on the very complex questions of multilateral treaties and material breach. Um, so is the entitlement to terminate or suspend a treaty available when the material breach is justified, where it is, in other words, an all things considered permissible conduct? Now, Article 63b speaks of the violation of an essential provision of the treaty, and this is the trigger for the entitlement to suspend or terminate the treaty. Now, the paragraph does not expressly state that the violation has to be a wrongful act, and for this reason, some scholars have maintained that it is irrelevant whether or not the conduct is justified. So long as there is a material breach, whether or not that amounts to a wrongful act, the, the entitlement in Article 60 should be triggered. Now, I don't really think that that interpretation can be drawn from the text of Article 60, insofar as the term violation is very often used in connection with the idea of wrongfulness. Now, the treaty might not have spoken in terms of an internationally wrongful act, and they probably did this to maintain that functional separation between the law of treaties and the law of responsibility that is um, indicated in Article 73 of the Vienna Convention. But the very use of the term violation denotes that the material breach must have to be more than a permissible non-performance, that there has to be an element of wrongfulness. So from the standpoint of the law of responsibility, the violation of an essential provision of a treaty would be an internationally wrongful act. Now it follows from this that if the material breach is then justified and is therefore not a violation, but an all things considered permissible non-performance, then the right of suspension or termination of a treaty is not triggered. So if the material breach is, for example, the result of a self-defensive force, or if it is the result of a countermeasure, then the other party will not be entitled to suspend or terminate the treaty. For after all, if the material breach is justified, it is not a material breach at all. Now, what about excuses? Um, I think matters here are a bit more complex. Um, as I mentioned earlier, excuses do not affect the illegality of conduct. Sorry. They do not affect the illegality of conduct, but all they do is exclude the responsibility of the state in question. So the act remains wrongful, but the consequences of that wrongful act do not arise. So these consequences, as I said earlier, are the uh, relations of cessation and reparation. So in practice, a state that is excused despite committing a wrongful act does not have to provide either of these two things. Now, if excuses exclude the consequences of a wrongful act, should they not also exclude the entitlement in Article 60? After all, the entitlement is triggered by a wrongful act and is, in a sense, a consequence of a wrongful act. Indeed, some scholars, like Ricardo Pizillo-Mazzeschi, whom I have cited there, have argued that excuses should also exclude the entitlement in Article 60 to the suspension or termination of the treaty. 
if the state that is author of a material breach possesses an excuse, then the other treaty party, in his view, cannot suspend or terminate the treaty. So if we follow Pizzillo Matzewski's view, then there will be no difference between justification and excuse for these purposes. Now, I am not sure that Pizzillo Matzewski is right. Um, it seems to me that the only way in which we can uphold his view is if we think of the entitlement in Article 60 as one of the legal relations that form part of the content of responsibility in the terms used by part two of the articles. Namely, if we include Article 60 as part of the general concept of responsibility. And I don't think that this is conceptually accurate. Um, the legal relations of responsibility, cessation and reparation, are intended to restore the injured state to the situation that it would have been in had the wrongful act not occurred, as the horse-sell factory, I can never pronounce that case properly, as the horse-sell factory case of the PCIJ said. But the entitlement in Article 60 does not actually have this purpose. This is intended instead as a means to remedy the balance of rights and obligations between the treaty parties, a balance that has been disturbed by the occurrence of the material breach. So it would seem odd to include this entitlement within the notion of responsibility, given how different the two concepts are. So while Article 60 is indeed triggered by a wrongful act, I don't think it can be counted as part of uh, the concept of responsibility, and for this reason, uh, it might not be excluded in the case of an excuse. So if the excuses exclude responsibility, there is no reason why the excuse should exclude the uh, entitlement in Article 60 either. So as can be, hints, uh, can be seen here, the distinction between justification and excuse, I think, can make a big difference as to whether these, this entitlement will be available to a state that is either justified in its conduct or has an excuse for its conduct. Now, given the different results to these practical problems, I think it seems a bit far-fetched to say, like Sir Thomas Frank said, that the distinction is one of pure academic interest. Um, these situations, as I said earlier, have not yet arisen in practice, but it does not mean that they might not arise in the future. Um, and I think that it is important that we keep these distinctions in mind if these situations were ever to arise. So the distinction can have an important role to play in international law, and I think that if we are able to draw it, we should possibly do so. Thank you. Thank you, Federica, for this wonderful